Hey everyone, welcome back to Misalign. This week we have our book club episode, but before we dive into that, we are are going to also talk about what music we've been listening to. And before we really get this podcast started, though, I just want to remind you guys that Misaligned is part of the Modern Vinyl family of podcasts, and you can find all of the shows over at modern-vinyl.com. And one of the ones I've been really enjoying lately is Missing Artwork, which is by Michael S. Conuelos. And he is also part of the Modern Vinyl podcast itself. So, you know, you'll hear him on two different podcasts now. But Megan, I think we are going to just go ahead and talk briefly about what we've been listening to before we dive into the book pick, because I know that's going to be a bigger chunk of our episode today. So do you have anything you've been listening to the last couple weeks? Actually, yes. I have been playing the new Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness album, Zombies on Broadway. Nice. I did listen to that as well. (laughs) I've played it a lot, actually, in the past week and a half however long it's been out actually my vinyl copy arrived earlier this week just you know the standard copy from amazon nothing fancy there and i have to say that love and great buildings and birthday song which happen to be the last two songs on the album are my absolute favorite on it and i have to think that Love and Great Buildings might actually be one of my favorite Andrew songs of all time. Nice. And I know when we talked about his singles a little before, you weren't entirely sure whether or not you were actually going to even enjoy this album. So did you find yourself pleasantly surprised when you were able to sit down and listen to it as a whole? Yes. I mean, after after hearing Brooklyn, You're Killing Me, I was a little skeptical because I still can't get into that song. And I was hoping that wouldn't be the vibe of the whole album. And thankfully, it wasn't. And technically, it's the opener after the Zombies intro, which doesn't really count because it's instrumental. Right. But I did enjoy everything on the album. But Brooklyn, you're killing me because it just kills me each time to listen to it. (laughs) Um, Despite that, I still love Andrew. I actually think this is a stronger album than his self-titled debut with the wilderness project that he has and i kind of dig the whole dance pop vibe it has we need some good dance poppy things in society today and uh yeah yeah and i definitely gave that a listen as well but the ones i put down for today you know they're ones i sort of just more recently listened to and i'm probably going to give them another listen sometime soon because i'm sure as you know, when I've shown you lists of all the music I've listened to in a year or something, you know, I don't necessarily get to a lot of albums more than once sometimes. But with these releases that I have on my list, one isn't out yet. So the obsessives and their self-titled record that's going to be out through Lamo Records isn't out quite yet. I believe, you know, that is coming up soon. So you guys should definitely check that one out. But the two recent releases that I've checked out so far are Danny Warsnop and his album The Long Road Home. He's definitely, you know, a country singer. And I don't even really know what sort of country category to put him in because I feel like he had a bunch of different types of songs on his album. So I really just want to give that a listen again. 
and see if it is something I indeed do like. I feel like on first listen, I was like, I think I like this, but I also don't entirely know yet. And then, you know, I'll let you talk about another album here before I get into my third pick, though. Trying to think of what all I have actually been listening to because it's been all over the place lately. Right. (laughs) I still actually don't even have my February playlist fully put together. There's like five songs on it. Right. Um, Because usually by this point, I have so many songs, at least like 10. And it's usually finished by this point. But let's see. What have I been listening to a lot lately? Well, this week was Valentine's Day. So I pulled out my Valentine's Day playlist that I made for Modern Vinyl last year. All because I wanted to listen to the Jonas Brothers' Love Bug. (laughs) Because I am an embarrassing human being. Who I totally forgot about that song. I have such a soft spot for that song. And in non-podcast uh, related news and semi-related Jonas Brothers news, DNCE did a surprise set at Penn State this weekend. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It was actually Thon weekend. So they did this thing on Friday. On Friday night, where I guess what was going on was some of the sports teams were doing some lip syncing or something. I don't know. I wasn't home to watch the broadcast when this was going on. So I just kind of caught up with Twitter. But the Lionettes, which are one of the dance teams at Penn State, brought out DNCE to perform. And I don't think this has ever happened at Thon, where they've gotten a large nationally known band that doesn't just do covers and bars to perform yeah that's interesting so that was cool and then they actually went to one of the sports bars in downtown state college and performed for the drunk kids out there (laughs) since basically everyone and their mother is sober in the bjc for thought weekend because you know for the kids Right. So it sounds like DNC just had a sports-filled weekend because they also performed at the NBA All-Star event that was yesterday in New Orleans. So yeah, they clearly went straight from Penn State down to New Orleans to perform. Be- I believe it was before like the three-point contest, the skills challenge, and the dunk contest and everything that happened last night. So they weren't, you know, the main act that's going to happen tonight before the All-Star game itself, but you know, close enough. They've had a sports-filled weekend. I'm sure they've enjoyed themselves. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, naturally, I'm not a DNCE fan by any means whatsoever. Nick Jonas will remain to this day my favorite Jonas brother. But I did retweet from my personal account Joe Jonas saying, we are with the Nittany Lion because I'm an unabashedly Penn Stater big fan. Anyway, um, (laughs) Going back on track, so the Fifty Shades Darker soundtrack was released not too long ago, and of course, I will not watch that series. I haven't read the books, I have no desire to, and I have absolutely no desire to see the movies. Even if Jamie Dornan has a nice butt, I don't care. It's based off of Twilight fan fiction, no thank you. Um... (laughs) So while I am very against the movie series and the book series, the soundtracks are usually pretty solid. I know everyone has been talking about the Zayn and Taylor Swift collaboration, I Don't Want to Live Forever. But on this soundtrack, it also features artists like John Legend and uh, well, Nick Jonas and Nicki Minaj. 
there i've just tied in my tangent about the jonas brothers but (laughs) one of the standouts on the soundtrack is actually by corinne bailey ray okay and she does a coldplay cover she covers the scientist and it might actually be one of my favorite covers of that song it's beautiful it's moving I don't want to know anything about what scene it might be used in in the movie and forever kill it for me. But yeah, her cover, it is fantastic. And I have to give whoever does the soundtracks for the 50 Shades series, you know, a pat on the back because the soundtracks aren't garbage. Yeah. And, you know, this is what, the second movie coming out for that? I think so. Series? I think it's a trilogy. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. But when... The first movie came out, I didn't even realize that Jamie Dornan was the guy in the movie because my mom and I had started watching The Fall on Netflix and he's a serial killer in that. So I was like, oh, he's the he's that guy in the movies. I was like, that's odd. But so, you know, if you want something to watch with him in it, The Fall on Netflix. (laughs) Probably better than the garbage that's out in theaters, honestly. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, the last final season they did was a little slow and you were kind of like all right can we pick up the pace here but before that really great show but like you said to get back on track here the third album i had on my list for what i've been listening to lately is matt pryor's memento mori and that's one that just came out this past week and i just i don't know what it is about matt pryor but i'll he's kind of like evan weiss and i'll just listen to anything he does whether it's his solo stuff his stuff with bands or you know any other side projects he has it seems like those two guys and mike kinsella always have something going on so there's always something from those three guys to listen to and this was definitely a solid album from him and you know a lot of his stuff is more acoustic focused i would say when he does his solo stuff And I just find his writing style really enjoyable. So I don't know if you are a Matt Pryor fan at all, but if you haven't checked that out, you might actually really like it too. It's actually been on my list of things to check out because I do love the Get Up Kids. Yeah. As I sit here looking at their record store day release from last year, I believe, maybe two years ago, probably two years ago. Are you talking about the 10 inch that they did? Yep, Red Letter Day. Yeah, yeah, I have that too. <laughs> yep, just it's on my record shelf right now. I see it. It's staring me down. Maybe I should play it after this. Nice, nice. Well, I think that wraps up sort of what we've been listening to lately. Hopefully, I will be able to keep better track of what I listen to, you know, from after we end this podcast going forward, because I found myself sitting here thinking before we started recording, I was like, what did I listen to the last two weeks since we've recorded? Because, you know, that's a good chunk of time. And with as many things as I listen to music wise, podcast wise, I'm like, what what all happened these past two weeks? So I think I'm going to start keeping better track of what I've been listening to. Not bad. I should probably be doing the same, honestly. Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, we are going to be discussing our book pick, which in case you guys forgot, it was On Bowie by Rob Sheffield. Megan, I know this was something you've been wanting to read essentially since the day it came out. And as people who have both read Rob Sheffield books before, we kind of already knew what to expect from this book, I would say, going into it. But one thing I do want to note before we sort of discuss it is that he completed this book in about a month. And that's, you know, obviously not counting the 
getting it to the publisher edits and you know that whole printing process for the books and everything that's sort of separate but i he himself wrote this in about a month and i think that's just something you know obviously bowie's death was so unexpected that he probably wanted to crank out this book as fast as he could so it would still be relevant when he released it i think it had a fairly fast release time too yeah yeah because he died in january or february of last year right i think it was like the tail end of january maybe i think so i'm gonna look this up because i don't know i know those two months are sticking in my head (laughs) and it's gonna actually bother me if i don't look this up right right i'm the same way with stuff like that too (laughs) But I enjoyed reading this book. It was very good. And I'm really glad that I took advantage of the Amazon price of $13.99 for it. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I had just checked it out from the library because I was standing in the music section and it was just like staring me in the face. So I, I remember I was sit- I was standing in the library and I texted you. I was like, do you want to read this? Yes, you do. <laughs> okay, thanks. Yes. <laughs> and then I left with it. Because uh, my library doesn't actually have this book yet yeah it's very strange sometimes the libraries around me are really good at getting the new books really soon and then other times i'm like how do you guys not have this book yet (laughs) so it's very hit or miss and i was glad they had this and you know like you said it was a very good book i think the only thing i really noticed was that and this is probably more so because of how quickly he had to write it it wasn't quite as personal as some of his other books have been known to be a lot of this was I felt like a lot of this had more facts about Bowie in it than it did necessarily anecdotes, I suppose you could say. He still incorporated those into the book. But, you know, I think with the amount of time, like I said, that he wrote this in and the fact that it wasn't that long of a book either, he can probably, you know, add some stuff to this book down the line and sort of release a new edition of it probably. Because I know when we read... Andy Greenwald's book, we were kind of hoping, you know, hey, if he did a new edition of this, that would be pretty cool because then he can update it with, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and something other than LiveJournal and make it a little more relevant. So I think, you know, there is a chance that he could do something like that down the line with this book. Whether or not he chooses to, obviously, is up to him. But what did you think about that sort of aspect? Was it personal enough for you or did you feel the same way I did and you felt it wasn't quite as personal as some of his other books? Compared to his other books, I liked the fact that it wasn't as personal. I mean, it's a book about Bowie who did die in January of last year. Just gonna get that out there now. (laughs) Um, And I liked that the focus was on Bowie. And I think one of the interesting things about it is that once you get into the meat of the book where he's talking about some of the albums, like the Major Tom era, it has a timeline of 1969 to 1980 to 2016. And what's nice about a lot of these is he counts down, like in the Major Tom, you can kind of hear in your head the countdown from 10 to 1 from the song right and that actually plays out in i want to say most of the chapters if not all of them because in the major tom chapter it says one space oddity begins with the 1098 countdown to the rocket blast and it's like he's kind of using that as a theme within the book because then looking at the 
next chapter after that, which is the queen bitch who sold the world, it doesn't have the countdown like that. And neither does Starman. I think it might just be, well, yeah, I think it's just the Major Tom section. And the, ah, yes, the Black Star chapter. That also features the countdown as well. Right. But it was nice to see more of a focus on Bowie than Rob's life. Like, Bowie definitely had a huge impact on him. And I liked how he had the intro talking about the Bowie cover band celebrating his birthday. Right. And I thought it was cute that he was able to sprinkle in that little anecdote where, uh, yes, he saw the tribute band Holy Holy play The Man Who Sold the World in New York with Tony Visconti on bass. Tony Visconti being his longtime producer. And I liked the fact that he put in Visconti had the crowd sing Happy Birthday into his phone and texted it to Bowie. David's at his birthday party, he told us. This isn't it. Even though, you know, the crowd was secretly hoping he would show up, which would have been cool. And I like that even in the end, he was still able to tie together the cover band from start to finish. And of course... I had to laugh because each time I read a Rob Sheffield book, no matter, you know, which one it is, there's always some reference to Charlottesville in it. I have not caught on to that. But being from California, I probably wouldn't have noticed that anyway. But for you, obviously, that makes a lot more sense. Let me see if I can find it because I had to giggle at it. But yeah, I mean, Rob is from Charlottesville, I believe. James would probably know more about this than me do believe he went to UVA, but, oh, right, in the night David Bowie died, um, you learn that Rob Sheffield has shelves of magazines, like music magazines. So he's got this old issue of a British music magazine with David Bowie on the cover, and it was a magazine that he happened to buy the night that he met his wife for the first time. This was in February of 2003 in Charlottesville, and he was meeting friends for dinner at Baja Bean, which is a really good Mexican place. But I don't think the original location that he is talking about is still in Charlottesville. I think it's moved because he mentions that he went next door to Plan 9 Records and bought a rock magazine for him to read. And I don't think, yeah, that location definitely isn't by the Plan 9 in Charlottesville, which I still actually haven't been to. But anyway... He does find the ways to put in small personal anecdotes, like ones that most people probably wouldn't pick up on unless they really have been reading Sheffield's work for a long time, like us, kind of. Yeah, I think it just would have added a little something extra had he put in, you know, some of his experiences with Bowie songs in particular like he did with Love is a Mixtape and how he mm-hmm. sort of went through and put what songs went with what experiences in his life. I don't think it needed to be entirely like those books. I just think personally for me, I would have loved to get just a little more of that. But that aside, one of my favorite parts of the book had absolutely nothing to do with any of his personal anecdotes, but it's when he, you know, compares Bowie to C-3PO. So I'll go ahead and read this paragraph just because I find it so great. And it's in one of those chapters you mentioned. Naturally, when I took the picture 
of this paragraph. I did not take a picture of what page it was on <laughs> or in say, what chapter. I could find it for you. But it's in, it's five in one of the countdowns. And it says, Bowie's sci-fi caper made him the C-3PO of rock and roll. A golden droid who has adventures all over the galaxy, yet remains fussily British and gay. Wherever he goes, a universal translator fluent in over six million forms of communication. Like any protocol droid, he's programmed to study and copy humans, but he's strictly an interpreter who ha- who isn't supposed to have feelings of his own. C-3PO's bowiest moment is Return of the Jedi on the planet where he gets worshipped as a rock star. <laughs> I do believe they think I am some kind of god, he tells Han Solo. It's against my programming to impersonate a deity. <laughs> and, you know, being the geek that I am, obviously a Star Wars reference definitely got my attention. And I think that was just something on Rob Sheffield's part that was so creative to do because it's like, who else could have possibly compared Bowie to C-3PO. I don't know who could have made that correlation there, but I am very, very glad that he did do that. <laughs> That's a good one. And that actually is in the Major Tom chapter. Okay, I wasn't sure. That we sure. were talking about. I, yeah. When you said the numbers, I flipped through to that and right on page 51. But speaking of that, the other thing I found interesting was that in the Young Americans chapter, Sheffield makes this interesting little note saying that young americans is coming from the same place spiritually as kanye west's bound to one of the great songs of this century and another lament from a cold-hearted posure mourning his failure to feel things authentically obsessing over vintage soul music as a way he can share vicariously in actual laughter and tears for kanye it's the aha honey that loops through the song the sampled voice of bonafide young American, Brenda Lee, who was only 14 when she uttered those words in her 1959 hit, Sweet Nothings. Kanye is haunted by that aha, honey, because he can never live up to the open-hearted sincerity of it, though her voice might be his shot at redemption. I don't think anyone could even take a Bowie song and compare it to a Kanye song, like Sheffield does. Yeah, and it's like he just finds these like I guess metaphors and similes to make with Bowie songs and Bowie as a person that incorporate all of this other all of these other cult elements of pop culture and it's like okay how do you even get to this thought here like I almost want to you know talk to Rob Sheffield and ask him what his thought process is when he's making these correlations and everything and it just baffles me how he does this sometimes. I'm like, how do you how do you even think of this? Like, seriously? <laughs> but then it's so great when he does. It really is. And of note with this particular book is uh, a picture section. I think it's important to talk about this picture section because I don't think that there are other Sheffield books that actually have a section devoted to pictures in it. No, I don't think so. Uh I wasn't entirely fond of the fact that it was kind of like in a weird place in the book. Yeah. Because it was between the dictator and the low profile chapters, which is about three fourths of the way through the book. Right. And literally doesn't even warn you. It's just pictures of David throughout the years from 1970 to 1995. But it does... It shows his different eras and how he constantly was reinventing himself. Yeah, definitely. And I think 
you know, like you said, it was in a little bit of a weird place. I think if he hadn't made it just a whole picture section, but instead incorporated each picture into a relevant chapter for the time period he was displaying in the picture, I think that sort of would have been more effective than just lumping them all together in between two chapters. Oh, totally. Totally. And like, even with incorporating it, it would have been nice to maybe see these photos before each of the chapters that marked a complete change in how he presented himself to the public. Right, like the various stages of Bowie. (laughs) Right, like one of his most recognizable forms. And I mean, let's admit it, he changed a lot. So it's perfectly acceptable to say that he had different forms. But when most people think of David Bowie, they think back to the 1972 era with his red hair and his outlandish style of dressing. And they don't really think about when he was dressing nicely, playing with even more so with the role of androgyny. Because the 1983 photo, he's kind of unrecognizable. Like, you could show that to someone and they'd be like, what do you mean that's David Bowie? That's not him. He looks too nice to be him. Yeah, and you're like, wait, he looks normal in some of these photos. Mm -hmm. It's almost like now when people see Lady Gaga dressed normally, they're like, wait, that's who that is? And I feel like, you know, you have some pop stars who present themselves one way when they perform that if you see them and they decide to, you know, not dress up that same way, it sort of start. I wouldn't say startles in a bad way, but it's like fans are taken aback by it. They're like, oh, okay, so he can be this kind of person too. And he can, you know, look like the rest of us. He's not necessarily this guy who just goes around wearing sparkly clothes all the time or something like that, you know? True. And while bringing up Gaga here, we could talk, like, we could mention the fact that last year at the Grammys, she did the David Bowie tribute. And I don't think that there was anyone more perfect than her to do that tribute to him because she is like that chameleon who can change around her look and her style and play it up and be as weird as possible or as normal as possible. And that just goes to show the impact he had on future generations. And while we're talking about his looks, it is there is something mentioned in the introduction where Sheffield says there probably isn't a Bowie fan on Earth who can claim to like all his different phases, not even Bowie himself. With a quote from Bowie where he said, the reinvention thing, I don't buy into that at all. He said in 1997. So this quote is going on 20 years old now. And it still, you know, holds truth to who he was as a person. But he goes on to say, I think there's a real continuity with what I do. And that's expressing myself in a contemporaneous fashion. The reinvention thing, it's an easy description, isn't it? Hey, Dave, you're a real chameleon. I'm probably the chameleon of rock because what I do is all ch-ch-changes. And Sheffield goes on to say that he's right. That's not just adequate as a vocabulary for everything Bowie achieved. 
the way he used all these sounds and visions to act out the loves and hates and passions of his music. And that caused people to question everything with him, which isn't a bad thing. We should all be questioning everything these days. Um, but I thought it was even funnier a few paragraphs later where Uncut Magazine asked Keith Richards to pick his favorite Bowie song, where Keith Richards said, can't remember, who was he? Oh, he went to the same art school as me. Changes, <laughs> maybe. That's about it. Not not a large fan. No, it's all pose. It's all fucking posing. It's nothing to do with music, and he knows it, too. Yeah, I definitely remember that passage as well. Mm-hmm. That one, you know, stuck out at me. Of course, you know, getting the mental image of Keith Richards saying that is even funnier. Um, right. But, you know. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, this book went over really well for both of us. But I just want to note that, you know, personally, I've never really been a huge Bowie fan. It's not to say that I wouldn't like his music. It's just something I never really got into. And I don't particularly know why that is. It's just, you know, one of those things. It's like if you aren't exposed to that music and, you know, if your parents don't listen to his music a ton, you know, you might not ever get into it. So for you, how did you really get into Bowie? It was definitely through my parents. Yeah. And I do remember that back... (laughs) This is a really, really funny anecdote, but... uh, Back in the days when DDR was popular, he was on one of the games for the PlayStation 2. Okay. I can't tell you which DDR version it was, but I can tell you that I remember dancing to Let's Dance on DDR with my friends. And they actually had a little music video of him playing in the background as you stomped on all the arrows. Right. So that's definitely a moment that sticks out to me. And I was like, this is so cool that this rock star is in this game filled with Japanese musicians and that I can just bop around to this. Me being terribly uncoordinated too. So being decent at DDR was an anomaly. (laughs) See, I never even bothered with that game because I figured I would be horrible at it, which I don't think it was for a lack of coordination. I think it was more for a lack of just not being motivated to do that at all in front of people. (laughs) I think with me, it's just, let's see how ridiculous we can be while stomping and jumping around. (laughs) Yeah, I had friends who would go and they would just play it at like, you know, the arcades and everything. And they would just spend their entire time there and spend all of their money on DDR. And I was like, I'm going to go shoot some zombies over here, guys. You have fun. Yeah, actually, last year, I played DDR on one of the machines at Dave and Buster's, and it was much harder than I remembered it being. And my friend and I just floundered and got laughed at by some people. Yeah, people like took that game so seriously. I was like, you guys, this is intense for me. So I'm going to go over here and play the games you don't care about. Yep. Now, going back to this book. As I'm flipping through, it's nice to have the physical copy because there are so many things that I did want to make note of. In the Black Star chapter, it's interesting to hear that um, there's a lot of hip-hop influence. It's kind of been woven in with some of the stuff in this book, like the earlier Kanye mention. Right. But in five of the Black Star, 
Sheffield writes, All over Blackstar, you can hear Bowie tip his fedora to musicians he'd given birth to. Lazarus sounds just like The Cure, circa disintegration, with that Robert Smith-style guitar. Dollar Days swipes a hook from Morrissey, the Jesus Made Me So bit in November's Bond a Monster. But before Lazarus came out, Visconti revealed that Bowie's main inspiration was Kendrick Lamar, who made everybody's favorite album of 2015 to Pimp a Butterfly. You can hear that in the leisurely jazzy grooves of Blackstar. The music sounded nothing like The Next Day, which was full of short, punchy rock songs. Bowie listened to Kendrick and got an idea for a different way he could approach music. He still wasn't finished learning. And much later, well, maybe not so much much later, but a few graphs down from that, Sheffield continues on to talk about the Morse code piano hook and Starman that comes straight from Diana Ross and the Supremes is You Keep Me Hanging On. And then going on to say that Bowie's love connection with hip-hop has always been a fascinating thing. The Roots' Questlove has a funny story about playing the Public Enemy album It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back for the first time in 1988, hearing that fame sample and saying, wait, that's my sister's record collection? Bowie was the rock guy in 1983 who stuck his white neck out and said that yes, he wanted his MTV, but he wanted to see more black artists there. I think if Bowie were still alive, we probably would get some sort of ethereal collaboration between him and Kendrick Lamar. Or even Chance the Rapper. I could see him doing a collab with Chance, and that would be so good. And I think Kendrick and Chance would be the two that would also really be into doing that as well. Right, right. And if we think about even artists in the R&B realm, oh my god, would I have loved to see a collaboration between him and Janelle Monae. It's just, in the wake of his death, even a year later, we can still think of these questions as to what sort of collaborations would be really cool. I mean, even a Gaga and Bowie collaboration would have been just out of this world, literally. Yeah, and these things aren't unthinkable either, because after Michael Jackson had passed, you know, we got a collaboration with him and Justin Timberlake. And this was, you know, well after he had passed. So it's like, these are things that can still happen. It's just a matter of, you know, having the material and being able to make them happen. That is very true. And it's interesting even to think about how a rock star was so influenced by the hip hop world, the R&B world. And I actually will go and give Blackstar another listen after reading this book because I want to pick up more on that To Pimp a Butterfly feel that he was inspired by. Because that was definitely a powerful album last year. And it, well, in 2015, we're still like a month, we're still a month and 19 days essentially into 2017. And here I am thinking last year was 2015. <laughs> go me um but anyway yeah i want to pick up on that and even going through the decades i hear him played on classic rock or classic rock radio a lot more now than i ever did before he died like i would be lucky enough to just catch his collaboration with queen and under pressure on the radio and that would basically be the only Bowie thing I would ever hear. 
now I'm hearing Let's Dance, Major Tom, Space Oddity, all of those songs on classic rock radio. And it just blows my mind because at the time these were considered more pop songs and they really were classic rock or even at the time just rock and roll. Yeah, definitely. Well, is there anything else you have that you want to say about the book? I know for me, I believe I gave it a four out of five on Goodreads, which, you know, like I mentioned, it was more so just me sort of wanting that personal side from Sheffield in this book. It wasn't necessarily the way he wrote it or anything that made me knock the star off or anything, because I still think he did a really, really great job of writing this considering the time frame he did it in. Like, I could never do anything <laughs> this great in a month, probably, when it comes to writing. Oh, I would have to say that hands down, four out of five, or four and a half out of five. Yeah. Because it made me weep a little reading it, because I <laughs> I'm just an emotional person. And I mean, last year, in the wake of his death, I saw Jack's mannequin. And this was on the 10 Years of Transit tour. And... Andrew did a very, very beautiful cover of Life on Mars. And it was just him, and I believe it was Bobby on guitar. And it was just the two of them on stage at the 930 Club, surrounded with this black backdrop and lights that kind of looked like the night sky. And of course, that made me tear up too, because I am a sap. <laughs> but it was just one of those, this would be something that I could see David Bowie just enjoying. I could see him enjoying this look back at his career from a huge fan's perspective, and he probably would have had a lot of respect for it. Like, I remember, I believe, when Prince died, <laughs> so uh, in February of last year, I was reading Rolling Stone, and they actually had a review of the Sheffield book in the issue. So while everyone's trying to process the news of Prince's death, I was just sitting there in a nail salon <laughs> while my nails are drying reading this review of this book. I'm thinking, I definitely need to read this. So that, going back to the fast turnaround that I had mentioned, that was definitely it. Right. He was already working on something, but I believe going back to this review, it was the death that just caused him to just crank out this as fast as possible. Yeah, and I believe someone had approached him and was like, hey, do you want to write something on this? And he was like, of course, so let me get it out to you ASAP. I think so. And I do like that at the end of the book, he has a note section where it talks about the key books that he relied on while writing. Right. And it's interesting to note that he's got Nicholas Pegg's The Complete David Bowie, which has never been more than a few inches from his nightstand in the past 15 years. Yeah. And I liked that he included the fact that he said, right now as I type, I have the 2000 edition next to my bed and the 2011 edition on my desk. Yeah. And it sounds like from your excitement of these notes, you have a whole new to read list from that probably. Actually, yeah, because what's interesting is not all of these are actually books solely on David Bowie. Right. He notes also crucial, like he has the top 10, which are, you know, about David Bowie, mm -hmm. but also crucial. Chris Adams' Turquoise Days, The Weird World of Echo and the Bunnymen, and then um, VJ, The Unplugged Adventures of MTV's First Wave, which 
could be a contender for a future misaligned reads pick, I think, if we can find it. Yeah. Because it features Alan Hunter, Mark Goodman, Nina Blackwood, and Martha Quinn, who are some of the original MTV VJs. Uh, he also goes on to note Transformer, the Lou Reed story, Harold Bloom's Kabbalah and Criticism, which, weird, but definitely a lot more, including A Light That Never Goes Out, The Enduring Saga of the Smiths. I saw a few references to Morrissey in this book, so I can understand why he would have made note of that Smiths book. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and he also mentions countless issues of Rolling Stone. <laughs> of course. Oh. And his own interviews. Okay, this is actually exciting. I somehow skipped this part. Um, <laughs> his own Rolling Stone interviews with Brian Eno, Iggy Pop, Nick Cave, John Taylor, Nick Rhodes, Karen O, and as he says, the goddess TV, Nick's. Yeah, definitely. He has a lot of his own material to pull from, so it's no surprise, you know, that he would choose some of the biggest names and be like, okay, I have this done and now I have to go write about Bowie. So how am I going to do this? I feel like that's something that would obviously be really helpful for him, especially, you know, cranking this out so quickly. He's like, okay, what do I have that I'm already familiar with and can sort of speed up this process? I think so. So it was good. And it definitely, despite him writing it in a month, it didn't seem rushed to me. No, it didn't. Not at all. It definitely seemed like something that was carefully and meticulously thought out. And it wasn't this big, drawn-out book either. He didn't go, you know, 400, 500 pages just on Bowie, which probably could very easily be done as well with as long of a career as Bowie had. But I feel like he really kept this concise and to the point, and he got out the thoughts that he wanted to get out. And, well, luckily for you, I think our next book pick will not make you weep. So, you know, this well, is a plus for you. <laughs> I, I cry during a lot of things. I can't help it. <laughs> yeah, but on that note, our next book is going to be Punk USA, The Rise and Fall of Lookout Records, and it's by Kevin Prested. And it's it's not a huge book by any means. I don't even know. It comes close to 200 pages. So, you know, we're keeping it to shorter books here as of late because Megan I know you and I while we are huge readers we might not necessarily want to do a book that's like 500 pages or something because chances of anyone keeping up with us on that one are probably pretty slim but this one is one that I picked up at a used bookstore and you know Lookout Records is definitely a label that has always interested me, but I never really knew a whole lot about them other than, you know, hey, that's sort of where Green Day got their start. So it'll be interesting to read this. Is there anything that you know about Lookout Records or are you sort of going into this knowing pretty much what I do about it, about the label? I'm going in completely blind. So I am looking forward to this. It should be an interesting, interesting read. Yeah. And, you know, this book has some pictures in it, too. So, you know, it's going to give you a little of both sides there. You know, they're going to show you some of the art that was behind the label and, you know, I'm sure photos of bands that they worked with and that sort of stuff. And it looks like it's all incorporated into the chapters like we were saying would be would have been better for on Bowie. That's true. Of course, then again, I'm also five years old, and I am totally here for books with pictures. 
<laughs> we have quite a few of those as contenders still on our list too. So, you know, if you guys like pictures, these are the books for you. But on that note, Megan, do you have any recommendations for this week? Yes. I'm completely killing it with the having a music recommendation like I've had for the past few weeks. I am not. But <laughs> The Notorious RBG. This is a book that I picked up on Amazon along with on Bowie. And it's basically a look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how kick-ass she is. Nice. And I think someone should really wrap her in bubble wrap this year. <laughs> please, someone do that. Protect protect her, please. Yes. We also need to protect Betty White and Stan Lee. This is also true. Just put, the, put them all in a bunker. <laughs> there won't be any legal implications either because RBG is a judge. <laughs> Yeah, and I only have one recommendation this week. Well, it's it's one recommendation, but you can read so many different things from this recommendation, so take it however you will. But I've been kind of going back to reading some more Batman comics, and Paul Dini has a ton of Batman stories in him. I don't know how this guy came up with so many different stories, because he worked on Batman the Animated Series and then wrote comics after that. So, you know, I recently read his Batman private casebook trade that came out and you know it covers a handful of issues from detective comics and I have no clue what the actual issue numbers were because detective comics is like in the 600s for issue numbers right now so you know a little hard to keep track of those but he just has some really fun really great stories and if you're a Batman fan and you have not checked out Paul Dini's comic book work, I highly suggest you do that. And I know not everyone here is a fan of Batman and or comics. So, you know, that is okay if you do not take this recommendation this week. <laughs> it's all good. But that's, <laughs> yeah, that's all we have for you guys this week. So as always, thank you for listening. If you guys want to go give us a review and rate us on iTunes, that would be really helpful. Or if you just want to hit that recommend button and overcast anything helps and we hope you guys have been enjoying the show and we're still going to try and incorporate some more little segments and everything in future episodes along with you know keeping you guys up to date on what we've been listening to so if you guys have any feedback we're at misaligned pod on twitter and i know i don't say this very often but you can also email us misalignedpod at gmail.com if you have any feedback and don't happen to be on twitter i know some people have sort of given up twitter as of late so i would not be surprised but we hope you guys enjoy the rest of your day